Hello everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. I'm Spencer, and with me as always are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Doing quite Good, well, Spencer. Spencer. How are you? Uh, doing fine, other than the now persistently usual lack of intro. But, this was a 330-page text that I read in two days, so I'm tired and be very eager to talk about it with you guys. Spencer, were you saving Sp Station Eleven for some other uh, section of your life or, or something like that? I know you were... Uh, on vacation, you couldn't suss out some time where you could just sit and read to yourself and, and do something along those lines? I was indeed on vacation. I did have plenty of time to read, and then I made the mistake of picking up, of starting N.K. Jameson again when I was on the plane, and then didn't stop for the next several days as I read through the second book of Broken Earth. Oh no, Fair you're enough. a goner at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all, is, like all is forgiven, Spencer. <laughs> I got like five pages in and then suddenly just forgot Station Eleven existed until I then picked it back up Saturday and <laughs> just steamrolled through it, having a delight with it. I but, must say I did something kind of similar where I was going to go back through Station Eleven and take some more notes, and um, I picked up a different N.K. Jameson book and read it and read like a third or a half of it Saturday morning or something like that. Man, Jemison is just the Bermuda Triangle of this podcast. Yeah, we're just going to have to start using her as a reference <laughs> phrase for just not failing to meet deadlines. <laughs> I, well, either her or Ger George R. R. Martin for very different reasons. Um, for, th yeah, for this episode, we are discussing Station Eleven, the fourth novel by Emily St. John Mandel, who I had not heard of before this, but apparently is rather award-winning and well-regarded. Sarah, you were the one who recommended this text. Uh, how did you come across it to start? So I happened to... I read it first um, about a year ago or so, and it was mentioned on another book podcast that I listened to. I don't remember which one it was, but um, they were really raving specifically about um, both the kind of like depiction of post-apocalyptic uh, post life, but specifically the sort of gorgeousness of the language, um, mm -hmm. as well as the weird various troops of travelers we encounter. Um, over the course of this novel. So there were a lot of things that recommended it to me, uh, especially its sort of um, preoccupation with Shakespeare. Yeah. I, I was actually going to ask you whether it was just like something within your getting your degree in English and, and this is sort of one of those things that it was just like some librarian who, you know, might or might not have been a witch was just like, um, you need to read this. There's a lot of Shakespeare in here. Um, and and calamity and disaster. And <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think we've mentioned in the past, Sarah, that you don't read books for plot, which has utterly baffled me, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of get it, but kind of don't, since I'm much more a, a I read for, for plot than um, prose or... Um, I think my my ranking would be plot characters prose um and then i don't know probably a couple of other things where it seems like your enjoyment of books is is slightly differently regimented yeah i would say i have a very close one and two between prose and just a, the the kind of mood of a book and whether okay. i want to be steeped in that environment or not which i think goes hand in hand with prose right and right. then I would put characters, and then plot is somewhere hanging out down the bottom. <laughs> well, to categorize this particular book, then, this is very much a Sarah book rather than a BJ book. Yes. Because this is... <laughs> yeah. there, there is a plot. It is, there is a vast series of connections between characters, but they are very much a setting that the actual point of the author is operating in. Yeah. 
Um, uh, and they are still complicated. They are still complicated enough that I sent you guys my little memento picture of the little character outline notes I took for trying to keep track of all these connections. But it's still secondary for what actually matters. Yeah. Um, I was going to say it was funny because my girlfriend also read it and she really didn't like the book, which actually surprised me a little bit because I did enjoy the prose and I thought how uh, Emily St. John dealt with the post-apocalyptic world was interesting. I think she built an interesting world Um, and there was, I'm not sure I'd even call it a twist, but a twist in the plot that I think is about as twist of a plot as you know a slight snag and and a yarn ball um (laughs) that she she just felt somewhat unfulfilled which i i found very funny um but she also said that it's like i saw the twist coming and when it happened i was really disappointed and you know that if i saw the twist coming then is it really (laughs) even a twist no because it's not a plot book (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's very much not a plot and it was also very funny because like i started looking for the twist hilariously early on and i like i figured it out i found it and it was just like all right well by and by the by like halfway or something into the book where you sort of get a little bit more information around the what i will call the plot you sort of know by that point it's not a plot book you know that yeah the plot is the device to 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 get the stories that um, the author wants to tell out, and she has about as uh, much commitment to the plot as um, Samuel Clemens had to the truth. So, <laughs> it's one of the interesting things where you even see the characters in the story talking about the the importance or dangers of adherence to plot, or in their case, memories. Of where several of our characters say several times over this that those who are best coping with the story, with the world they're now in are those that are less concerned with the memories of the past and how they believe through into the future. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, less concerned with the plot. Yeah, and so yeah. Um, I think we sort of have a parallel between this and Broken Earth, um, where in Broken Earth we have sort of three acts in three different periods of time, and they're interspersed throughout the book. And so in this book there is um, a pre- apocalypse apocalypse and post-apocalypse narratives Mm -hmm. and they're all sort of vaguely tied together um with being completely interspersed throughout the books and what seems to be very little rhyme or reason yeah with a a pretty large cast of characters who are kind of rotating around through those through those different periods too right um so I think that we had talked about today doing what little plot there is but giving the broad outlines of kind of Mm -hmm where we are and where we're going, let's say. We are on the road. And um, (laughs) then sort of talking about what this world is, what this apocalypse is, what it means to be pre and post apocalypse as well. And then we'll Mm -hmm. save sort of characters and some of our lingering questions for next time. It's interesting in terms of talking about this, of where when I was buying a copy of this on Amazon and looking up like the original Wikipedia page, there was a lot of description of this of being a science fiction book. And... Having read it, I don't see that at all. Um, I don't really get why people would put in that category other than the fact that it's post-apocalyptic and mm-hmm. most of that is science fiction. But 
As said, we'll, we'll provide a degree of settings. The author does engage in a fair amount of world building that is interesting, even if it really is only the stage that her characters are on. I feel like um, alternate reality slash alternate future reality go mm-hmm. together with are, are a subgenre of sci-fi. Sure, I think that's fine. I, it just doesn't seem to square itself as well with a lot of what I was expecting. The story of this book is my expectations of it, and then it going in a variety of different directions. Uh, this is probably more than any of the books we've read in this show. The one I went in having a thought and being most wrong about where the plot was going, what the point of the book was, what was the author emphasized with, or even just what to expect out of the author's writing style, which is fascinating to talk with at a later point. But for the world, I think it's fair to say that this book, in its earliest act, begins itself in pretty much the present day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Um, yeah, I think it looks it looks and feels that sort of pre-apocalyptic world looks and feels very much like our world and like a very present version of our world. Right. Yeah. A bit of alternate history attached to it in terms of there being an economic collapse in terms of uh, one of our main characters, Arthur, being the you know equivalent to a Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio kind of level of regarded actor. Um, but otherwise, right? still very much our world. Just a very popular actor that doesn't exist in our world, but isn't but isn't theirs. It's okay. a different world than our own. I was going to say Leonardo DiCaprio was. I, I don't know. I felt a bit. He's probably actually about the right age, isn't he? Probably about the right just, age. Just I, better, I guess, pre- better preserved. I, I felt that he was more um, stage actor oriented than movie star. But I, I get what you're saying. Um, I think that's even still more of a recent trend than what it was the bulk of his career. Yeah, but. I think he is at the point where we meet him, but when we delve back into his own right. particular sordid history, like he was very much a movie star. I, th- I right. Well, I guess to me it was uh, theater, movie, theater. Um, that's that's true. true. That's, that's true. fair. Yeah. yeah. The actor studio, Hollywood, and then back. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the story is, for a lot of the early part of the text, structured around the city of Toronto in our very much modern world. As the characters are going about their lives, and we'll go through those kind of moments of their plays here, either here or now or later, but they, as part of their daily modern life, are hearing these vague rumors of something happening in Georgia, the country of Georgia and the Caucasus Mountains, and then extending it out into Russia. Some vague rumors of a, a new flu that people are having a difficulty managing with, but no one's really caring about it. It's still only at the background of the news, and it's not really informing people's lives. But... Yeah, sorry. Oh, they really, they are thinking of it kind of on the lines of like an avian, right? Right. Difficult to deal with, potentially deadly, but probably a little overblown. Yeah. Several of them name drop things like SARS Mm -hmm. or swine flu or even flu. It's just that, oh, what are people worrying about? This is just going to be just as overblown as those were. Everybody was saying it would be the new epidemic, the the new bubonic, the new Justinian's plague to descend upon us. But it proved to be nothing. And that level of complacency, that level of jaded mindset from prior media exposure is really informing how a lot of these characters are dealing with the rumors of the plague on the horizon. Um, What proves rapidly different about this one, I think it's worth describing the plague early on, given it sets everything that goes thereafter, is that this thing is hyper-lethal in a way that almost nothing has been since, you know, the bubonic plague. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we learn early on that um, a plane from... I can't remember if it's specifically from the Ukraine or from Russia, but lands in Toronto, and within hours, everyone who was on that plane is dead. Yeah. yeah. This is like a 90, 99%, like everybody dies super quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, I think they even say at one point that 99.9% .9 of the people that get it die, or more so like one out of every 300 survives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think the it says the incubation period is between three and four hours before you manifest symptoms, and then you are dead in 24 to 48. So there's really no practical way for people to even prepare for it. Mm -hmm. The moment it has arrived, it is already an epidemic. It is already destroying the society around you because there's no time to prepare if you're already falling down dangerously ill inside of three hours' time. We see that planes are even quarantined before they land, or quarantine orders arriving in the moment they land, but just even the act of flying between point A and point B, the entire plane is now dangerously ill and dying. Yeah, which, again, I don't know. This is one of those things where it's just like, I'm going to accept this on face value and assume that everything's going to be relatively internally consistent. Mm -hmm. um, which it is, I would say. Yeah. And, and, and just like in this world, yeah, this I think she, plague she, works. Exactly. I think she does a good job of describing it um, and sort of going along with like what's happening. Um, yeah. And I also... Realist sorry, Spencer, go ahead. I said, realistically, this would seem like it'd be some kind of disease that had jumped between species, because otherwise it would have no hope of being a really functioning disease that would stand a chance of evolving into something new thereafter, because it's very rapidly killing off its entire host body with very little, ch very little opportunity to breed outside of that. Yeah, I wonder if she was playing, like, the Pandemic app when she came up <laughs> with this, um... Yeah. Matt, we, we never hear whether Madagascar, Greenland, and New Zealand fell. And I'm willing to believe from those video games that those are still those countries are still doing fine. Um, they just haven't sent out any airplanes. Exactly. Shut down their airports, you know, early enough on. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like the start of the book, it sets the tone in a way that um, there, are, there are other books that do this, but I feel like it's still a little bit uncommon. Um, where basically you get Arthur, who I would make vague uh, motions towards being the main character, even though there is no main character. Um, mm. The first chapter has him dying on stage. and During a production of King Lear. <laughs> yes, and during some Shakespeare, which I feel like is the one of the few threads that, that continues throughout this uh, book that is somewhat satisfying, other than the Station Eleven thread, which just makes me angry, um, that um, we have another character that then rushes up to try and save him, who's in the audience, and that who he then sort of continues being a character in the book, which was also kind of weird that um, his story continued a lot longer and then had some vaguely interesting uh, vignettes. And basically, the death of Arthur sort of triggered, in a sense, the start of the plague. Mm -hmm. And I sort of wonder if you guys think that he had the plague or he just died of a heart attack. Um, I really the... think he just died of a heart attack. Okay. Yeah, that was my thought, too. I think that, you know, that... <sighs> We are meant to we are meant to connect the beginning of the plague with Arthur's death, but I think it's a sort of it's a red herring. Yeah, and, more of a harbinger rather than mm -hmm. like he's actually. Yep. yep. But you know, also potentially a sort of indication that he was not fit to survive in the world that was coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it is interesting that this play though sets the structure, or at least sets the characters that are going to be relevant for every aspect of the story that happens that mm -hmm. comes thereafter. The three characters coming together 
the book will then, then go in entirely different directions in terms of where they are, what time the book is discussing in their lives, whatever else. But this chance meeting between three people, one of them an actor dying on stage, another a very young child actress who's been incorporated into King Lear in a very novel way, and then a kind of amateur par- a paramedic in training that runs on the stage to try to save him. That mm-hmm. These three will be the story from here on out, mm-hmm. where they go, what they do how they are connected together in ways that are not immediately apparent at the start of this text will inform everything that follows. And it is an odd little moment to begin with. This um, this book is built around odd little moments like this that connect people together. But as That's Arthur what you dies, have to do if you don't have a plot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this one's going to be fun as we talk about this. I also, can I, I'm going to ignore you for a second, BJ. Um, <laughs> can I, I would like to just put in at the beginning too that part of, I recommended us read this book because I love this book in in so many ways. I realize that there are are certainly problems with it. But one of the things that, especially on a second reading, I kept coming back to was how funny it is. Mm -hmm. In a, her entire style, would understated be the right word for style? It can be very beautiful. It can be very poetic. Yes. But at the same time, it is almost purposefully spare. Yes. It it, It has a laconic way of going about itself, which is appropriate in many ways because so many of the characters are throughout the text telling their story or the story is being told as if it is being told from memory. As if the various details have been lost through the time, as if they're describing the vague picture image that they have of the past rather than an authentic, lived-in journalist kind of style. I guess I would also put forth that it's not just, like, a remembered story from, like, the long past, but also, like, it reminds me in many ways of some of the stories that we tell about our shared history or Mm -hmm. even not our shared history, but in a large group where Mm -hmm. it's not a performance, but it's storytelling that if you want to cover a reasonably long period of time or something else, like you can't tell all of the details that make it a good plot, Mm -hmm. but there are things that you want to talk about. And at some point, like, if it's not a performance and you're telling somebody or some people a story, you have to, like, touch on things and talk about, like, vignettes and relationships and things like that to get the feel across, which might be more important than the plot of the story. Yeah, and it it really is sort of storytelling as, not performance, as you said, BJ, but storytelling is kind of muscle memory as a sort of Mm -hmm. trained practice um, that deals with this issue of of memory, I think, really interestingly in the the kind of post-apocalyptic world where there is a lot of discussion of you have to train yourself to leave certain things behind and to leave them out um, in the same way that we get depictions of survivors training themselves to skin animals or maintain the limited clothes that they have or whatever it is that become these sort of routines like this feels like a story that has been told again and again and again and sort of honed um with the idea of leaving certain things out as a survival skill yeah Mm -hmm. and i guess i would also say that it it sounds like something that has been told over and over but not passed on Mm mm-hmm Whereas, mm-hmm. like, there's a single narrator that's been honing a story to talk about some things, but it doesn't have the feel of an epic, essentially, yeah. which which this kind of is. 
it, it, it's, an, it's an epic in the sense it's a compilation of individual stories, but it's really each individual person telling their own story, having repeated it, having thought about it, having left out certain things they need to leave behind. But everything is still very personal and very individual. It is their own journey, it is their own story. They connect together, they form a tapestry together, but they still are living their own life kind of independently. But in terms of, we were talked about setting up the plot, which we <laughs> rapidly got a feel the same way the story does. That's how this works. Uh, as this play is going down in Toronto, as Arthur is dying on stage, the plague itself has entered Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, it has arrived on a plane, and our several, one of our characters hears from his, Jeevan, hears from his friend at the hospital that there is a plague, we're concerned, you want me to tell you if there's anything concerned. 30 minutes later, there is a plague, we can't control it, consider getting out of town. An hour after that. There is a plague. I'm dying from it. Do of that as you will. Mm-hmm. That's the level of progression we're seeing in that. Yeah. And, and this was like a guy that like was going to tell him if something serious was going on. And so he's just like, oh, crap. I think even at like the earlier outset, not like the he's like, you need to take this seriously. This isn't just like a bunch of people are sick. This is hole up and... Right. You, you mm-hmm. need to find a way to isolate yourself so that this thing kills off all of its host population in a way that you can survive the burn. And uh, so Javon starts making r- repeated frantic trips to the convenience store near his brother's apartment, just hauling out groceries and canned goods and toilet paper and water um, until... Finally, he gets to close it. We, he is about at closing time, and this cashier is looking at him like he is an absolute lunatic. Um, when he starts buying, his last cart, which I think is so funny, is essentially luxuries, mm-hmm. right? Like fresh fruit, some flowers, because he, he can. And I think he probably knows somewhere in the back of his head that this might be the last time he can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting for these scenes when we see people, we see each of our characters at various moments in the story and what things that they were doing right before society collapsed in a way it could maybe never return from. Mm-hmm. And what we see throughout them is that all of the warnings are in the background. All of the news is talking about borders are being shut down, hospitals are shut down, airports are closing. This is a big deal. But most of the people don't care. Mm-hmm. Most of the people are so jadedly distracted that they are utterly unaware that their demise is looming. Yeah. The and world is about to burn around them. And I was going to say, things, like... Oh, go ahead, BJ. Just the image of him taking a shopping cart that's essentially loaded up with, like, all of the water mm-hmm. is just kind of... It's the, the exact right image. Because, because it juxtaposes the um, very sad images of the normal population that you might see with a cart that is not at a grocery store mm-hmm. and presumably this very like center dead center middle class kid who just essentially just got off of a date with his now ex-girlfriend essentially and probably still has his like you know slightly fancier than business casual with a target cart going up to his brother's apartment and that's just like the right this is the end of the world and nothing makes sense scene Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. through a a snowstorm i might add but one of the things too before we go too far away from the theater um at the very end of kind of the theater scene one of the things that i really appreciate that this book does periodically is 
you sometimes get, it's almost cinematic in how it kind of goes between perspectives. And you sometimes get these moments where you have kind of been in somebody's head, but you go back to the scene they just left and get just a glimpse of what is going on there. And so at the end of this theater scene, we get this moment that, um, you know, it's snowing outside, the ambulance of ambulances have been there. Um, there's been this hubbub, but there's still this like, this group of men who decide to go hole up at the bar, at the theater bar for a while. And the bartender is sort of gratefully still there. And you get this casting forward into the future at the end of that section that talks about which one of them lasted the longest before he died on the road outside of town. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think it was even th that uh, one of them lasted the longest. He died three days later of exposure on the road. Mm -hmm. It is a wonderfully haunting line. Because before that, we really don't necessarily have a sense about what this book is going to be. And then suddenly that line just hits you out of nowhere of just that, okay, we're watching the world end right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that all of these comfortable, self-satisfied, BJ, as you said, sort of middle-class men are all of a sudden just no longer with us. Like that—that mm -hmm. that is really, as you said, Spencer, haunting. Yeah, and it's in... I mean, I think we might want to save a lot of the uh, individual character stories for the next episode. Otherwise, mm -hmm. this will be a very long episode. <laughs> um, but it is interesting to see how fast the world ends, but how little time the author wants, and how little time the author wants to spend with that aspect. We spend of very little time in the apocalypse itself. We spend very little time within the year or two after the apocalypse. Pointedly, as you said, Sarah, it's, it seems like a very conscious decision of the characters that that time was horrible. And no one needs to ever discuss it again. We don't we get much information it. until about 10 to 15 years after. Yeah. No. It's very we, sketchy. We, we get like the first 90 days, mm -hmm. and even then only for like one or two, for one of the characters. Who is and pretty holed up, yeah. Very intentionally holed up. Purposely yeah. isolated from everybody else. And then we follow the rest of the characters. For a couple of them, we'd see like three, five, ten years mm -hmm. later. We mm -hmm. first skip those first years. But for like characters like Kirsten... Um, am I pronouncing that right? Is her name Kirsten? I think so. Sure. sure. We see her time at the play, and then we pretty much don't see anything until 15 years later. And mm -hmm. even that's being told from the, another person writing it down. The bulk of her story is 20 years in the future. Mm -hmm. And as she talks about, it is a very conscious decision, or at least a necessary survival mechanism that the body's put upon her, that she doesn't remember that period. That she has no memory of what occurred in, that, in the year afterwards, or even the events that happened before the collapse. That what matters is the moment, what matters is the present. And that period, if it, she doesn't remember it, it's because she doesn't need to. Because it's better that she doesn't. And the text seems to adopt a similar mindset for it. Of where the apocalypse is happening. That world is ending. And that's an important thing. But the process of it ending is not relevant. That's not, that's not what we should dwell upon. Um, I would like to take one second to dwell upon it. Uh, no, simply I think because we should, it is... but I think the author wants to. <laughs> well, I, I only want to dwell upon it because it is directly relevant to my drink tonight. Oh please! <laughs> I forgot. I, I forgot we have a we have an interior segment of Magnum We, Sarah, we do. Um, so I <laughs> looked up a list of apocalyptic drinks online, and there were several, many of which looked terrible because they seem to be mostly of the genre of well, this is the alcohol you have left, so mix it all in a glass and drink it, or just Those drink purple whiskey. Jesus in there, <laughs> or flaming blue Jesus. Oh, that's right. Um, Probably not. No. That's more causing the apocalypse than for the apocalypse. Yeah, there is the pre and the post. Um, but the drink that I have made 
is called, and I think Spencer, you particularly will appreciate this name, uh, Suffering Bastard. I adore it. What is this thing? <laughs> so it is equal parts of gin and brandy. With, um, it is supposed to be a lime cordial, but I did not have lime cordial and was not willing to buy it. So I actually did a little bit of grenadine with some lemon juice. Um, and it is shaken and served cold and it's pretty good. Which of the characters in the story do you think would most enjoy that drink? Because this is an interesting and unique drink you picked for this. Arthur. Mm-hmm. I was thinking Arthur, yes. It's gotta be Arthur. Um, uh, I also like think of him despite the fact that he died before the apocalypse and did not experience the suffering of the post-apocalypse. I think of him as the suffering bastard. <laughs> very much so. As we see very much at the end of the text, that is his life. That is where he has ended up. That is the state that he is, in many ways, as much as Kirsten thinks very fondly of him, as much as he has really driven her life since the apocalypse... They are such polar opposites when it comes to their perspective on dwelling. Mm -hmm. Of where Arthur lives in the past. He focuses on all of his failed achievements. He continually makes new and big decisions to try to escape it, but is never able to really get away from the haunting effect it has upon him. Whereas Kirsten has abandoned the past. She has left it behind. She has a few casual memories of it, but otherwise she doesn't even like to talk about it. And it, yeah, it makes her... The idea of him as a suffering bastard really is an accurate way of describing his character. But... For how the plague progresses, I think one of the things I find most haunting about it is the slow dial-down effect that it really has. Yeah. That it spreads everywhere immediately, but then the world slowly dies around them. The, the author describes it as being like almost like a neutron bomb dropped on humanity. Of where, with a disease being your catalyst of your post-apocalyptic scenario, you have the effect of eliminating one thing in the world, humanity, while leaving everything else relatively intact around it. And the slow death that humanity has in these chapters, but with technology primarily, like as they watch the television shows click down, as they watch the journalists be replaced by various staff members at the news station, is a really interesting concept of how that would go down that I've not really seen before. And it's interestingly told specifically in the very, very limited perspective of Javon and his brother, who is wheelchair-bound in his apartment. And so Javon takes all of these... Uh, supplies up to the apartment and they hole up there and they cut off everything and we get from their perspective as you said Spencer when the tv channels shut off as the newsrooms begin to clear out um, as mm -hmm. the newscasters begin to just break down and start sending messages to their families um, mm -hmm. and then eventually as kind of the electricity goes off and all of that and then finally as as Javon's brother makes the decision that Javon can't move about in the world and continue to survive without him. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, that, and that he will not be a burden upon him. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I love the haunting scene we have at one point as we see the various news stations click off, as they just switch to other programming, that at least in a couple of the stations, the camera is still rolling, there's just no one there anymore for mm -hmm. it. That it's literally just filming an empty desk. Because it's been left on, but no one is there either left alive or left trying to operate anymore to keep the station going. Mm -hmm. Um... But everything spreads fairly quickly just due to the utter lack of an incubation period that this disease has. That with our globalized world, with planes flying people around, every nation that they know of is exposed within a matter of hours. That this is, once it left the confines of where it began in Georgia, there is no controlling this. There is no stopping it. Wherever people can go, which is everywhere nowadays, it spreads with them. And so society dies. That modern civilization... And it's presented in the initial part of the text that modern civilization is dying a permanent death from which she'll never re recover or return. By the end, we've given some hopes that maybe that 
maybe modern civilization itself died permanently, but some vestiges of it can be rediscovered and persist again. There's the real plot. Yeah, (laughs) that is the real plot about what aspects of humanity endure, survive, grow, remember, renew, or start afresh. Mm -hmm. That is where this book wants to go and explore. I have a quick question for you guys that I guess is probably more part of the world building, but how confused do you think like the fairly uh, segregated tribes of like nomadic tribes and stuff like that that have very little uh, outside world contact but have some mm-hmm. how confused do you think they are when just like every so often they'll have people come about and it's like hey you know can we have this touring group come in with you guys and that just mm-hmm. stops and they don't like have cell phones or anything to like catch up it's just like the dude that would show up like once a month or you know a couple times a month to to set up a meeting with you know the tribe elders and have like a feast just doesn't show up yeah for pretty much any society that maybe doesn't get exposure to the outside world more than once a week or once a month they're fine they're enduring but as you said they're enough exposed to the world any of these outside tribes that there, there's going to be a confusion. There's going to be a go- the, the gods are crazy kind of moment, at least, attached to this. Yeah. I and even don't some know- other places, like all of Saskatchewan, is just going to be like, oh, crap. Uh, now what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting to ponder what places would endure and survive this to at least some degree. But it, I mean, for those kind of isolated tribes, I'm left to wonder, would they go exploring to go find out? Would they go and check? I would presume so. Um, I feel like this is something that we should return to uh, maybe towards our last episode. Like, what would... A pondering. Yeah, what would you do, you know, if you weren't, etc., etc. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see which of the three of us would volunteer to become part of the Traveling Symphony. I have a bet, but we'll see. (laughs) That it's Sarah? Um, I don't understand how that's a bet. (laughs) (laughs) This you know, is literally all I bet. actually want out of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so kill basically the entire world and be part of a Shakespeare crew? Uh, yeah, but Shakespeare flutes are hell. music? <laughs> there, is a, there is a possible hope, assuming that the lead um, clarinet survives, that they'll also be going through German Expressionism. So, you know, there could be a hope for more diversity in the future. Well, in terms of where else the plot goes... Um, I feel like that each of our characters that survive and endure do so in part due to isolation. That, Like we talked about with the isolated tribes, that those who survive this are, for various aspects, either able to enjoy their white middle-class luxuries and buy the supplies they need to lock themselves in a high-rise apartment for, like, how long was Jeevan there with his brother Frank? Like, Weeks. two months? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. For, for quite a while. I also feel like we really just don't get a lot of information about how a majority of the people that we meet or even our perspectives actually survive the apocalypse mm-hmm. no because um, they don't remember it at least they yeah, don't care to remember it they just sort of shut it out and it's like hey oh yeah we just wandered out of the city and then we survived for a while and sort of figured it out and yeah. then i think we essentially progress past the the apocalypse happened and then let's talk about this wandering troop yeah, and so followed them for a while. Yeah, this is one of the kind of bigger chunks of time that we deal with. It's about 20 years after the apocalypse, and things have stabilized, really. Right. A lot more so than even in the most recent past since the apocalypse, that 
several of the characters talk mm -hmm. about that the stability they now have of a series of small towns in what is seemingly primarily the Great Lakes Basin mm -hmm. is relatively new. That the idea of these stable communities have formed and are growing or even thriving in certain ways was not possible even a few years in the past during the period of what I'll just call it the Great Burn or whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, of when society, because the you know, Georgian flu was the condition, yeah, but what happened afterwards in society since in terms of marauding bands, constant violence, people killing each other on sheer sight out of presumption that otherwise violence would be inflicted upon them was what they, their most recent past. But it's not what they're living in now, of where the Traveling Symphony is a well-armed company in the way that merchant troops used to be back in like the Middle Ages. But they're increasingly operating in a very civilized world that looks forward to them coming. That this is just part of a regular two-year circuit that they do between the increasing number of towns that have formed and are prospering in the area that is uh, pretty much between like Toronto, Detroit, and Chicago and back again. Mm -hmm. And there, I mean, there are certainly still dangers on the road. There are still places that they will not go. But mm -hmm. this group of people that ebbs and flows a bit, but also seems to be relatively stable in the number of people who are there, the type of people who are there, um, they have made a life together as a community, but really as a traveling community. And so you have a number of musicians, um, ex-orchestra players, ex-band members, amateur musicians, mm -hmm. potentially, and then a number of people as well who are and were in their previous lives some form of actor. Yeah. I think they described that the, tra the traveling symphony originally formed from a military band that survived at a military base and then just mm -hmm. kind of set off on their own and then came across a collection of actors that had somehow survived the exit from Chicago. And then that formed the core. And then for the last 20 years, they've been picking up various outcast musicians, actors, or just people who had nothing else to do upon the road that have now traveled with them and formed their own kind of family that, like all families, hates each other bitterly but can't <laughs> find another way to live their lives. Yeah, and so they, they travel around to these different towns and give performances and stay for a few days, a few weeks, whatever it is, potentially pick up a new member. Um, but most of their time is really spent on the road and traveling. Mm-hmm. Hence your line about uh, hell was other people or flutus. Because yes. <laughs> with, this, with this amount of time spent together, they can't imagine another life than this. This is what they've chosen. This is what their bliss is. But that much time on the road constantly for years... There is murder in all of their hearts, just mm -hmm. not in their actual deeds. And so in the discussion of the Traveling Symphony, you know, we get a couple of things. We get a little bit of discussion about sort of how alliances and romantic liaisons and whatever rise and fall. Um, but we get a little bit about a few of the members, and we'll talk about characters later. But um, Kirsten, who was our child actor from the sort of apocalypse era, is one of the actors in this in this troupe. And one of the things that she does with um, a friend or two of hers is also then to go out on sort of scavenging missions, raids. maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, raids. <laughs> um, to houses that they come across, et cetera, et cetera. But now we also learn that sort of 20 years on from the plague, the possibility of finding an untouched house is becoming less and less frequent. So you mm -hmm. have this kind of process of them going in and out of these houses as well. Yep. Um, and I think in this we get a little bit of a tour of like what's going on in the cities. We get a little bit of um, 
a little bit of sort of the overall thought of the book is like how much do you preserve history and how much do you move on mm-hmm. and some of the wrangling with the members and like okay are we seriously going to go through all of Shakespeare and never change it or do anything to it and it's this stagnant culture mm-hmm. um, to and... which the argument is for better or worse ocean the, the themes of Shakespeare speak as much to this time as they ever have right. to any other yes. time a plague strapped apocalypse mm-hmm. yeah he was right in there just as much as we're living it now <laughs> the, though as one character points out that he was living that with a hope for a better future whereas they're living it with a memory of a better past which i think which, is really fascinating it yeah. is that is a really interesting analysis of that but the, I mean, the main reason they're doing it is a they all know it because it's freaking shakespeare they're all trained up growing up but also yeah. it's what people want mm-hmm that they've tried to do other material, they've tried to do other things, but people keep just preferring Shakespeare. Why that is? Nope, I don't know whether they answer, other than that, again, it just it speaks themes that resonate now. But mm-hmm. I don't think anyone ever offers a confirmed answer to that question. I feel like that's a very English major question and answer. Um, I think that's a very specific brand of English major question and answer, who is probably not me. <laughs> oh, I. Sorry, Sarah. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. Oh, okay. I um, if I, I if, if I had really. that, I would have. I would have said, you know, an English PhD rather than English. I major see. Okay. Um, but I guess the like, you know, I I feel that when people talk about Shakespeare, um, and especially when you're reading it in high school, which is mm-hmm. like the worst possible experience that anybody can have of Shakespeare, I feel like, um, that you talk about how Shakespeare appealed to the masses. You know, there were uh, dick and fart jokes for, you know, the common people, and then, you know, some more uh, intricate relationship and, and thing, other entertainment for the middle and upper classes. Oh, yeah. It was the original common entertainment. Yeah, the uh, Shrek of the the Renaissance, as it were. Oh, good Um, lord. All the English majors just died from that comparison right there. I'll do my best. Um, I'm going to move right along. (laughs) (laughs) So Um, I would say we get a lot of... We get a lot of the traveling symphony traveling around and doing their their thing. mm -hmm. But one of their motivations in kind of where they're going when we meet them is that they had about two years earlier left two of their members in a particular small town because um, they had gotten together, they were having a child, they were going to stop and rest and begin to raise the child, right? Mm. Um, Give birth and and raise the child. And so they were circling back around to this town. This, uh, it was St. Deborah on the Water, according to my notes. Which is just a delightful name for a town. Um, so they, they get to this town and are walking in expecting the same warm reception that they got the last time that they were there. And I would say that that is not what they get. Yeah. And it's telling that they are an armed mercenary group that can just deal with a lot of these warning signs that are going off and not go run away screaming because they pretty quickly see that this is not a safe place that they should stay in. Uh, that there are not many people, they are not that happy to see them. And there is an element of quasi-religious fervor that is apparently resonating around a particular individual who is a new rival in town. Uh, There is also no sign of their fellow troop members who Uh -uh. they left there very specifically. 
No, no. There is a massively expanded graveyard compared to what there was before, with the interesting concept of grave markers, but not graves yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> Sorry, BJ, you, do you want to take that further? I was, Well, the only thing that I guess I sort of wanted to add is I find it interesting when um, a lot of post-apocalyptic and other literature and, and, and media go with the, like, and then prophets pop up and do super weird things whenever, like, something bad happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of wonder how true that would end up being. I don't know. I mean, yeah. There, it, as you said, it is a very common trope that in the event of the apocalypse, cult communities will form around particularly charismatic prophet-like figures. That's a very old trope to see in a lot of uh, post-apocalyptic um, fiction. I, like you, I don't know whether that's realistic or not, but it is so ingrained in me to assume it's going to be the case, I'd almost be disappointed if it doesn't. Well, and what I think is interesting about this depiction of it specifically is that we are... This is, as we've talked about, we are not immediately post-apocalyptic here. We are in a stable time. And it seems to be the sort of stableness itself that is allowing a prophet figure and a cult leader to emerge. Right. That in an earlier and more violent age, he just would have been shot in a gutter by a different rival gang. Whereas, by comparison now, where things have calmed down to the point that these towns don't need constant armed guards, they don't need a a militia levy to bring out when necessary that he's able to operate with a certain degree of impunity. That mm-hmm. In this case, the mayor died of a, of a spring flu, and he waltzed in with no resistance, and the town is now his. As he continues to snap up young brides. Oh, isn't that always lovely? <laughs> uh, this particular series of events leaves, uh, leads our traveling symphony to leave town, and then the majority of their story thereafter is they have received information that they're lost members left town previously to go to the Museum of Civilization near Severin City. Yeah, and that's so, their decided on meetup point if, like, right. they ever get separated. Um, so uh, they spend the rest of the story heading in that direction as uh, increasingly the, they realize that the Prophet and a few select individuals are in pursuit of them as well. Yeah. Um, so Partially the, because the Prophet's new fiancé is stowed uh, away in their caravan. He was mentoring yeah. her. It's fine. Um, <laughs> oh. You are never going to let me leave that behind, are you? Uh, well, no. It, no. Um, so this actually kind of reminded me of um, a lot of writing about the Romani and also a little bit um, in, uh, what was their name? Uh, Rothfuss, his version mm-hmm. of the Romani. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh right what do they call them? yeah look doesn't matter talking to you. um this anyway is really so, good radio guys. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the things that we don't remember um, yeah. but basically it's the you know they talk about they don't want to be seen kidnapping children and and anything mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. so like no you should totally stay and then they're like okay well we can't really let this eight-year-old becoming the new bride of of the prophet so like okay like i guess we'll go along with it um yeah. A demaru, by the way. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. Um, and so I thought that was sort of like an interesting addition um, mm-hmm. to to the whole story, but very, like, vignette. Very, I think it helps set um, the readers in the world rather than anything else. 
And so I, I think that, Sarah, like you, you talked about this being a movie or something like that, and I think this would be a very good scene in a movie to help everybody in the audience like understand what, what the author is referencing. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't know, with a lot of the literature that I've read, you know, with Rothfuss and, and quite a number of other uh, stories and, and authors, you get this traveling... Uh, you know, tinkers or uh, play actors or whatever, and then they do reference, you know, our sort of own history with the Romani and and them stealing children, but I feel like that's not super clear in this post-apocalyptic setting, and I think that that little vignette tells you so much more about the troops' history than pretty much anything else that happens that's actually written. Yeah, because it, I mean, it feels in some ways a little bit, the way they deal with the situation, although this particular prophet and kind of what he's doing is is obviously new, it feels almost like a situation and scenario that has happened before. It's almost kind of rote how they end up dealing with it, right? Yeah. It, they feel like an organization, they feel, well, and they feel like a very realistic organization of where so many of their rules were made in the past when they were very much needed. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. they maintain a very strict principle of being apolitical, of not getting involved in local politics, probably because in the initial years when they first started roaming, I think they started like five years after the day, um, They, if they had any degree of involvement in local towns that they weren't comfortable with, they were at risk of being wiped out by whatever was there. Now, yeah. in the more civilized age that they're in, some of the rules come across as a little bit overly... As, as leftovers from the past, but mm-hmm. they very much adhering to these principles by which they've been able to live as long as they have. Yeah, um, and and that's why I say, like, I think this, the things that they talk about gives you a rich depth of, like, you can imagine what this company has been through, and she doesn't have to, the Emily St. John doesn't have to actually tell you about all of these vignettes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can kind of fill in the gaps. Um, yeah and create this sort of rich imaginative life around where they are and what they've done because it is so repetitive. Like their life is very repetitive. Mm-hmm. Everyone's life us... is very repetitive right now. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like she gives us the cultural yeah. touchstones for a lot of things that we need to fill that in. Yep. Also, I just looked it up and on the sort of movie-like quality of some of these scenes, uh, Station Eleven is going to be made into a 10-episode TV. Really? Mm-hmm. Who, who, uh, uh, what uh, channel is picking it up? Well, so apparently it's going to go on Warner Media's upcoming streaming service. Oh, well, that kind of disappoints my hopes for it. Um, but it's go- <laughs> it is going to be directed by Hiro Murai, who has done a lot familiar. of Atlanta and Barry. Hmm. If that's helpful. And then, I don't know, somebody else I don't know is doing the adaptation. Well, in terms of adaptation, one of the things I find really interesting about the some of the primary groups we see throughout this story of where... Two of the main groups we stick with for most of this novel are the people who were in Sever- the Severn City Airport that later formed the Museum of Civilization and mm-hmm. the Traveling Symphony, and the various people that operate around them. And there's such an interesting blend of styles that happen as a result of the world they're in and the people that make them up, of where the Traveling Symphony, as we talked about, is focused on classic music, is, fo- is from a rigid marching band, is playing out Shakespeare, but the words that they march under are from Star Trek Voyager. Yeah that the Museum of Civilization is run by a, by the, by, by the end of the story, a 70-year-old, 
a 70-year-old British executive who is run a life business for many years, is maintaining a museum by which people can be educated about the long periods of their past, the new children can be brought up and what the world was before, and he has shaved half of his head, dyed it pink, and is wearing a bright, nacre, a bright neckerchief with four earrings in his ear. <laughs> it's such an interesting uh, hodgepodge of styles that it's happened as a result of where these people are, what they have been, and operating in the world that they are, of where they're keeping the memories of the past, but in some ways, as a result of so much of the world falling off around them, they're able to be more individual. There's fewer things put upon them, there's fewer expectations, there's fewer requirements on them, just because all of the culture that was built around those now no longer exists, and they're having to chart new territories that go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely fair. Um, and it there are a number of ways in which those kind of meshings happen in more or less positive ways, let's say. Um, but you have, you know, sort of violinists who in a previous life were very gentle and doing their violin thing or whatever, who have the knives <laughs> tattooed on their on their wrists because they yeah. have had to kill people, right? Um, yeah. So we also get kind of that side of the coin as well. Um, so as the prophet is continuing and his gang is continuing to kind of track our um, traveling symphony because his child bride is with them, um, mm-hmm. members of the symphony start disappearing. Yeah. The necessary part of them operating, they have to constantly go out and forage. They have limited degrees of long-term supplies, but otherwise they live off the land. That's the only way they can. Mm-hmm. And as part of sending people out to scout, to forage, to scavenge from various homes, whatever else, as you said, several start missing in ways that no sign is left behind. It's as if they were just suddenly plucked from the face of the earth. Yeah. And Sarah, I'm going to apologize to you right now, um, but I feel like Spencer probably has seen more Star Trek The Next Generation than you have, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, um, that's probably fair. I, I've seen a lot, so we'll, we'll <laughs> um, go, go with there from me. <laughs> so I I had this, like, when I was reading this part where, you know, the the symphony members start disappearing, I had, like, flashbacks to... Um, there's an episode of The Next Generation where uh, the warp bubble that was mm-hmm. decreasing and people just started randomly disappearing. And as, if, as if they were written out, written off out of existence. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the sense that I got. And I was just like, well, that was like a left turn. Like, people are just disappearing <laughs> We've gone science out, fiction of, now. out of nothing. Like, okay, like, what is happening here? And then it's like, well, they didn't just really disappear. It was just a, <laughs> it seemed like they disappeared out of nothing, at, right. you know, out of nowhere, leaving absolutely no trace. And I was like, all right, sure. Yeah, they're being pursued by the Prophet Seal Team 6, who is purposely... 12 years tra- old and quiet. One of them's 15, the other one seems older. Um, <laughs> and they are purposely plucking members of the Traveling Symphony to have hostages to secure the return of his wayward escapee proto-wife um who he believes that if he has you know bargaining chips that he can negotiate seemingly a peaceful return of her whether we believe him that he actually tends to go forward with that or not it's a different question um at the same the time sorry at mm-hmm. the same time Kristen and i can't remember who she is Aug- with necessarily august august that's right Kristen and august kirsten and august have gone on um a raid right mm-hmm. and find all kinds of cool stuff and an untouched house which is really neat um but in the process of doing that they lose the entire symphony and 
can't find any trace of them or are lost by them right they get separated from the entire symphony Mm -hmm. and so they are then trying to decide what to do they end up you know go deciding to go to the meetup point they are supposed to go to but in in the process they are now alone on the road Mm -hmm. which is an entirely different situation than traveling with the symphony no i mean for kirsten in particular this is a the, the only other time she's had to do this previously was when she was with her brother which was a long increasingly forgotten bit in the past when she and peter were traveling out of toronto that she as i said purposely blocked out of her mind Mm-hmm. So it's not a very comfortable thing that they're now alone now on the road. And it would be a relatively dangerous thing, too. But they continue on without too much difficulty, raiding a few homes, encountering a few artifacts of the past that are remarkably well-preserved. Yep. Um, they get a little bit more history mm-hmm. sort of interspersed with this, um, which oh, maybe we'll come throughout. back to. Yeah, throughout mm-hmm. we sort of get a little bit more of Arthur's history and like how all of these relationships and the people that we sort of meet come to be and then essentially I, like yeah, it's i fun. feel like i feel like that for discussing arthur's past we should almost save that for his own character part because yeah, that was what i was gonna say yeah so separate from all the rest it's important yeah. it's linking everything together it's 51 years of his history um but it just does not factor into the rest of the plot no. yeah and what i was gonna say is essentially the next thing that happens is the stuff to the prophet comes to a head mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. essentially everybody that whose perspective that we have gets captured mm-hmm. and then uh, with, with the exception of frank and the uh, and the airport but they're they're all they're, they're a whole other right. separate plot the mm-hmm. the symphony uh, yes. uh perspective and and essentially uh what happens with all well with many insane demagogues that don't have a a clear base they uh their influence always only goes so far mm-hmm. um and so one of his child soldiers just sort of goes, well, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've been getting hints of this for a while with this particular character, where mm-hmm. he's one of the first members of this particular uh, followers of the prophet we get to meet in the town of St. Deborah on the Water. And throughout the other scenes since, he's been one of the main ones we actually interact with. So there's been a lot of signs that he's not happy with what he's doing. He's not happy with his life. It's just a world where there's not even a concept of alternatives. Right. And so following somebody who has a presumably clear vision seems to be the most reasonable thing at the time. And then when he's presented with a little bit more sanity, um, whips out an avocavadra and... <laughs> we'll work on it. Or, or a Colt 1911, we'll see. <laughs> uh, uh, and Ice is the prophet, and the... Which was a, I would say of all the aspects of this story that I would not have, I did not predict correctly when the story began, the prophet, his importance in the story and his resolution went nowhere where I thought it was going to. He is not the point. He yep. is not the point. In so many other post-apocalyptic stories, he would be the adversary. He would be the main other character, the antagonist by which the characters, the protagonist story is driven by. He isn't here. He's just a f- another figure in this world. A connection a connection to the overarching series of character connections this book is built on. Yep, a connection to the past, you know, a little bit more of the weave and threads in the tapestry, but but very little else. Mm-hmm. And ends ends in a way that um, I'm reminded of a uh, Firefly episode where sort of 
the big bad you know captures somebody and and you know sort of this terrible thing and then sort of the main character wanders by kills him out of hand and just like wanders off Tosses and it's like him. all right like we have important things to do like let's get on with this and so that's kind of what happens like you know yeah. his child soldier mm-hmm. kills him and is like all right well he was insane we're kind of done uh mm-hmm. thanks I, for there's no other point to my life so yeah yeah thanks yeah. for playing some music and shakespeare we'll see you later mm-hmm. and the symphony then goes to the airport essentially without any more uh issues as i remember no there's no real other incident the the symphony itself just apparently enjoyed a rather circuitous route to avoid the prophet chasing them Mm -hmm. and they had no issues on the road they're already basically they're arriving slowly but they're getting to the uh, severn city with that issue yeah and then essentially they arrive at the severn city we get a little bit more of what the uh museum is and what's contained in it and and who is in the um uh layover airport trying to get back to uh florida and you know running out of food in the airport (laughs) spencer's cameo in this novel is (laughs) sure not expected yeah i had two days and left my amex on the counter and then i was out of that story (laughs) (laughs) yours was the first artifact in the I, I did love that scene because I would totally have been the guy that does that. Where everybody, everybody, it's not stealing. I'm leaving my credit card. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I feel like that's essentially it. Like we get a so, little bit of resolution. Yeah. We, we get a little bit of um, more character development, but that's the plot. And I well, the <laughs> last the last big point of the plot, um, mm-hmm. which we'll have more context when we actually talk. Um, probably in the next episode about how this Severn City Airport came to be a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But is that the the keeper of the museum takes Kirsten up into one of the control towers because they have started to notice something a little bit weird on the hills um, kind of across from them. And yeah, source of we, light. Yeah, we end, we end up with a, with a source of like very clearly man-made electricity um, mm-hmm. and electric light <laughs> gleaming and across that- the hill. And not just on a small scale either. Yeah. It's an entire grid. It's a grid. The town itself is being is powered. Yeah, yeah. So we have a very sort of Gatsby esque green light across the pond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good reference right there. Ending here. Yeah. And huh? that's the plot. <laughs> yes. That. I mean, that is very much the plot, and we'll we'll get heavily into that in the characters because the characters are the damn plot. But yeah. it is that is very much the author finally saying, "Here's the point. If you weren't getting it." I'm, I'm showing it to you now. I'm showing it to you with the other main character, who's in many ways just realizing it herself. Mm-hmm. But here it is now. You've come on this long journey to this airport, and now let me show you what the world... Yeah. So, um, other than there, you know, not being enough plot to fill up an episode, we have filled up an episode with just the plot. <laughs> um, and as so, we do. As we do. Uh, I think next uh, episode we'll continue with characters, and as was my fantastical um idea for for this podcast in general which we have essentially never done except for like the first (laughs) book that we ever did um where we do plot characters and world building i think this is um as sarah you suggested (laughs) like probably like one of the perfect books for it oh it Um, is all right (laughs) It's one of those things where if you're structured in three parts, this works very well for that because the plot fits narrowly as being about a third or less of the overall point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. All right. So next time around, 
characters. Exactly. Um, so, mm-hmm. as always, it was a lot of fun. And if you like this, uh, you might like some of our other content. We have our Pottercast within a podcast, Pottering Around, mm-hmm. where we do a chapter-by-chapter reading of Harry Potter. We are um, currently on working our way to Chapter 10, but that doesn't quite sync up with the release schedule of our real podcast. Um, there is also Whiskey on the Weekends, uh, Mangum Laughs, Mangum Talks TV and uh, something to do with basketball, which, eh, whatever. Um, and you can find all of our content on MangumTalks.com, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or anything like that, um, if you go to MangumTalks.com, there is a Contact Us link that is mostly filled with spam, and we would love to see something that isn't. All right. Well, on that very hopeful note of what the future of our lives can bring and what the future of our particular endeavors can, can, can carry about, I'm looking forward to talking with you guys next week about this particular book. But until then. Bye, y'all. Like, 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 like